chapter 1. We're continuing our series today, uh, which we're going through our list of, of the things that we uh, embrace as a church, these doctrines, this statement of faith about the, the ten vital things that we believe and we agree on as a church, as orthodox doctrine. And two weeks ago, Pastor David taught us about how we feel about the scriptures and how we believe that we should feel about the scriptures. And we talked about uh, last week the Trinity. Um, and this week we're going to kind of break down, begin a three-week process of breaking down the Trinity, and we're going to talk about God the Father. So if you would read with me at First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, we read this last week. We're going to expand on a little bit this week, but let's see what it says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now keep that phrase in mind. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thus says God's word, you may be seated. So as I mentioned, we're going through this, this uh, series. We're calling it What We Believe. And, and over uh, the course of 10 weeks, we'll go through each point that is found in our statement of fundamental truths that uh, we have out there on, in the foyer, uh, the brochure, it, it reads what we believe at Northridge Life Church, so you can have a copy of that for yourself. Um, and this is what we state in that document about our belief in God the Father. You can read it up there on the screen. It says, we believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, that by his word and for his glory, he freely and supernaturally created the world out of nothing. That through the same word, he daily sustains all his creatures, that he rules over and together with the Son and the Spirit is the only sovereign, that his plans and purposes cannot be thwarted, that he is faithful to every promise, works all things together for the good to those who love him, and in his unfathomable grace gave his Son, Jesus Christ, for mankind's redemption." That he made all things for the praise of his glory and intends for man in particular to live in fellowship with himself. Now last week as I mentioned in our series on the fundamental beliefs here in RLC, we looked at the concept of the Trinity. Now if you weren't here, that, that word Trinity, it, it represents the belief that all true Christians hold that uh, about God's nature and and. And we believe that God's nature is best understood in the following three statements. We talked about this last week. God is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that each one of those persons is fully God. And that there is one God. That's what we believe. 
So what we want to do today is examine the, our specific belief about God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Now, as I said last week, that for many Christians, the terms God and the Father are simply interchangeable. People will refer to God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not in any way theologically wrong to do. There's nothing wrong with saying God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. But it can unintentionally lead to some erroneous theological conclusions if we're not careful. This is because, as we learned last week, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are every bit as much God as the Father is. That while their roles are different, yet harmonious, they're completely equal in their substance and in their authority. There is how many gods? There's one God, but they are representing how many persons? Three, and each person is equally God. Therefore, our challenge this week is not to understand how the three persons are different from one another in their roles. We did that last week. But to distinguish the person of the Father within the triune God when we see the terms God or the Lord in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. But let me warn you something. Let me give you a a, a small warning as you approach this subject, not to approach it in any kind of cavalier attitude, because it's extremely difficult and almost impossible to kind of carve out the, 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 the person of the Father from the Trinity. Why? Because of this unity that exists within the Trinity. It's that idea of three persons being one God. And the fact that we commonly associate uh, the, the Father with certain aspects of the acts of God, like creation uh, or sanctification or the resurrection of Jesus, that they're attributed to, throughout Scripture to the Son and the Spirit as well, throughout the, all the Scriptures. So what is distinct about the Father? Well, one of the first things about God the Father is that He is the one in whom we best see both the oneness or the unity of the triune God. That's why when the Jews prayed in the Old Testament, they prayed to God. They had that great declaration we looked at last week in Deuteronomy, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we see the unity of the Trinity in God. But also the second reason is that he also shows us clearly, this, uh, this person of God the Father shows us clearly a God that is transcendent. Now that word transcendent means that he exists apart from and is not subject to the limitations of the material universe. He's bigger than what he has created. Amen? He's bigger than that. He does not exist within creation. He exists outside of creation. 1 Timothy 1.17, the Apostle Paul put this concept of his transcendent in the, his transcendence in these words. He said, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And it's this immortality and invisibility coupled with his knowability that make him transcendent. What I mean by that, his knowability, is that while God remains unknowable to us in the fullness of his being, has anybody here, by a show of hands, figured out God? Go ahead, I'll wait. We can't know God in the fullness 
of God. His, his ways, as he says in Isaiah, are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But what he has done is the biggest miracle that, that should cause us to just be amazed constantly is that he has made himself knowable through the covenant of grace. Marinate, marinate, marinate. A God that existed before everything, who one day in a time that we cannot understand because all we understand is time, pierced whatever there wasn't and said, let there be light. And the response was that there was light. And in six days, he created all the cosmos, all the known order. That God, now let this sink in, has provided for you a covenant whereby you, you little ball of dirt, can know him. I could say amen and we could go home right now. I'm very serious. You... With all of your faults, with all of your wickedness, that I have the same, have been invited to know the God who, as Curtis once said, calculates his wealth in galaxies. And he's invited you to know him. Let's catalog some of what the Bible says about God. And then we're going to reiterate briefly how the Bible tells us he's distinct from the Son and the Spirit. And we'll finish by considering his unique role in the saving of mankind. If you picked up a Bible, let's say you were raised in a jungle somewhere, and you picked up a Bible for the first time today and began reading it at Genesis 1, knowing nothing about God previously, the first thing that you would conclude about God is that he is all-powerful. You would see it on the very first verse. In the beginning, as I just mentioned, God created the heavens and the earth. This one being created everything. That demonstrates, in my mind, some pretty significant power. Would you agree? And then you would have this, this finding confirmed on every, almost every page of the Scriptures following. And this, the theological term for this is God's sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God reigns as the unrivaled supreme over everything and everyone in every place. Sovereignty means, a lot of times we don't like sovereignty, but I'm going to tell you, with not pulling any punches, what the biblical concept of sovereignty is. It means that God can do and will do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, with whatever He wants, to whomever He wants. Shall I say that again? Sovereignty means that God can and will do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, with whatever He wants, to whomever He wants. You're not any more excited about that as almost anyone else on the face of the planet. God overrules, doesn't just rule everything, He overrules everything. Everything. No one can resist, no one can oppose, no one can overpower Him. He knows no threats, He knows no challengers, He knows absolutely no rivals. 
I love this. I've shared this with you before. Psalm 115.3 puts it so well. It says, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. God never has received a permission slip from anybody to do whatever he wants. Right? Y'all awake this morning? A related word to God's sovereignty is omnipotence. And that means that not only God can will anything he wants, but it means that God has the creative supernatural strength and power to, to achieve whatever his sovereignty demands. He's never at a lack for power to accomplish the will that he has determined. I love uh, Daniel 4, one of a couple of times in the book of Daniel that the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar has had his mind completely blown by Israel's God. And, and he, this pagan king, turns in a matter of praise to the God of Israel. And this is what he says in Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 40 says that the nations are less than nothing compared to God. Being a zero is one thing, but God says that everything accumulated is less than zero. It amounts to less than zero when, when accounted, when weighed against him. And let me tell you something. If you think you're a big shot, that will put your self-centered ego into perspective real, real quick. Because if all the assembled nations are nothing, less than nothing to him, what do you think you in and of yourself are to him? Anybody want to volunteer an answer to that? We also have to consider another fact that God is omniscient. And this means that he possesses perfect knowledge with no need to learn anything. He cannot be taught because there's nothing he doesn't already know. In fact, he's the origin point, the very origin point of all truth and all knowledge in the universe and outside the universe. Isaiah 40 says this, it says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? In other words, who's given God advice? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? No one can hide anything from God, so it's pointless to try. He knows everything. Let me tell you something. If we can get real here, If you are a sinner, if you are apart from God, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible thought. On the day of judgment, and that is a very real day that's coming, everything you thought was so carefully hidden will be brought into the light and judged, and there will be nothing, no argument, no excuse, no philosophy to shield you from the just wrath of God. Not a single thing, because he knows everything. Oh, but if you're a believer, let me tell you something. If you're a believer, you have nothing to fear from the omniscience of God. Nothing. There is no greater comfort to know that all of your steps are under his loving, watchful eye, and he's keeping you in all of your ways. Isn't that a great thought? Great thought. 
But God is also omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. It means that God is everywhere all the time. Psalm 139 captures this the best. Verse 7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, guess what? You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the unknown world, the, the spirit world. That some people, some Bible translations translate it hell. If I go make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is the original satellite tracking GPS. You cannot hide from him. You are on God's radar wherever you are. No matter what you do, no matter what you believe, you are on God's radar. Lastly, God is eternal. We talked a little bit about this last week. God's eternal nature means that he has no beginning and he's always been. And it also means he has no end. He always will be even after everything else ceases to be. But it means more than that. It also means that because he has no beginning and no ending, that he must be self-existent. If you'll recall, when he met Moses in the burning bush, Moses asked him a very legitimate question. He says, when I go to the the Egyptians and say, you want your people out of there, who do I say sent me? And God gave him a revelation, this wonderful revelation of his name. His name was Yahweh, and it meant this, I am that I am. He says, I am because I am. I am, I am in, within myself. I, I don't have an origin point. You and I, as you know, this is basic science. We and I exist because at some point in history we were conceived by our biological mothers and fathers. There was a time when we did not exist, then a sexual union occurred, and we began our existence. Conversely, uh, our existence, this existence we now enjoy, will end at some point in the future. Yay! It's going to end. We, we, there's no avoiding it. Our, our bodies are going to wear out. The, some accident might take place. A disease will be contracted and we will die. It is our inevitable end. No matter how strong, fit, beautiful you think you are, the day is coming when all of this will end. It's all going to be over. But not so with God. He has no parents, so no one can claim to have conceived God because then he would be a part of them and he wouldn't be utterly unique. Moreover, he will never die. His reign will never end. And nobody is ever going to take his place. Sovereignty omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, eternity. All of these things are just a tiny little sampling of what we call his attributes, the characteristics of God. They're helpful, but they're limited. They they show us a little bit of what God is like, but we could describe him in other ways as well. His attributes of being, his mental attributes, his moral attributes, his perfection, his blessedness, his glory. But our picture would still be incomplete because he's too vast to grasp. Way too vast. And all this because of his transcendence. Paul said it. He said like this. He said, when we see God, we're like, it's like we're looking through a dirty mirror. He said it's through a glass darkly. It's like God is sitting in a dark room and we're trying to see him through this window that's just covered in dust. And and, and we, we know that he's there, but we just can't quite make him out yet. But... 
when we go through these, this is kind of what I was describing at the beginning. When we go through these these points of, of attributes or characteristics of God, we also have to come to this conclusion. We can never forget that all these attributes are seen in equal measure in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's no greater or lesser rank. There's no greater or lesser degree within the Trinity. So how do we know and see that the, the Father is distinct in both his person and in his role? Well, just real quick review. We'll talk about some of the things we talked about last week. But one thing we didn't talk about last week, you can consider how we know he's distinct even from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, um, we see his distinctness, especially when one known as the angel of the Lord shows up. And he, this angel of the Lord shows up several times throughout Old Testament scripture. Now, this is not to be confused with an angel from the Lord, a, a messenger with that God sends. It is the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord speaks as God in the first person. He, he uses personal pronouns like I and my when relating to God's identity and his authority. You can look at Genesis 16 or Judges 2 for a couple of examples of this. Additionally, when people meet the angel of the Lord in Scripture, they exclaim this, I have seen the Lord. You can look at Judges 6 for an example of that. But since the angel of the Lord, now watch this, since the angel of the Lord is presented as distinct from God, many Christians have concluded, with very good rational reason to do so, that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is actually Jesus before his incarnation. Now that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. We call that a, a Christophany, when Jesus shows up in the Old Testament before he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, proving both that he's eternal and that he's God and that he's distinct from the Father. Additionally, in the New Testament, we talked about this last week, we see Christ being verbally affirmed by the audible voice of the Father in the New Testament, as well as the fact that Jesus prayed to the Father. So I, I don't think we have to belabor that point. We see Jesus and, and the Father and the Spirit as distinct uh, persons within the trinity but if i may be so bold as to ask you the same question that i asked you last week what difference does it make who cares so god is unique why does that matter does the fact that god the father is distinct from the son and from the spirit make any difference to our eternal salvation and i bet most of you would guess that I would enthusiastically say, yes, very, very much so. It makes a huge difference. How? Well, let me start here. In the greeting of every single one of Paul's letters, he wrote uh, 13 books in the Bible in the, in, that were letters. He, in those letters, he signifies God the Father, not just the Son, as the author of our salvation. In eight of his 13 letters, Paul uses an absolutely identical greeting when he starts his letters. He says this. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the remaining five, he uses some slight variation of this same greeting, always attributing salvation to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you read that, our tendency is to just read it as though Paul is saying, dear Romans or my dearest Galatians, and that that's just kind of his way of opening a letter. But what I want you to see this morning is that Paul is opening his letters with a comprehensive atom bomb. 
bomb, a theological atom bomb that frankly many of us just usually skip past to get to what comes next in the letter. Let's pause for just a second. Like Paul said this morning, Selah, let's pause and, and see what he's saying. See, Paul is blessing the churches with two things that we're going to consider, grace and peace. He's affirming them by confirming what God has provided for their blessing and their benefit. Grace. Grace, it's that unearned and unearnable gift that the Father has bestowed that we might know Him, as I said earlier. See, grace, if you can earn it, guess what? It ain't grace. So Paul says, says grace that you earn ain't grace. He didn't put the little Texan in there, but he did say it. Grace is that unearnable gift that the Father bestowed so that we can know Him. It's impossible to receive grace when we're dead in our sin. We've talked a lot about that. When we're dead in our sin, the Grand Canyon gapes its wide open mouth right before us. We're, we're, and, and, and the way it works is this, this Grand Canyon is open and God is on one side and we're on the other And there are no bridges. There's no helicopters. There's no way whatsoever for us to cross the span because God is just too holy and you and I are too vile in our wickedness and our rebellion. But then, then came this grace. Grace to you and peace through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then came grace. What we couldn't do was accomplished by Jesus. If you never understood what it is that you might have known from just living in this culture that Jesus died on a cross, you may have even known that he died for your sins. But let me make it more clear. This is what Jesus did. Jesus became vile so that you could become clean. Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. Jesus was broken and battered so that you and I could be mended and well. Jesus was put to death bearing our sin on his shoulders so that he could raise us to life again. And because he gave us grace, and only because he gave us grace, we now have peace. We have peace because of grace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father from the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there was once, why do we need peace? Because we always want to frame, even when we're lost in our sin, we always want to frame God as just our good old buddy in the sky. But the truth, as the Bible proclaims it, is that you and I were at absolute war with God, that there was open and unabashed hostility between you and God. But now there's peace orchestrated by the compassionate heart of God the Father. See, we've thought, and you've probably thought this, I've thought this, you thought that Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven. And that's certainly not untrue, but it is way too small. Did you know that? Jesus didn't die just so your sins could be forgiven. He didn't die only to do that. He died and he rose again so that you and I could be reconciled to God, just like we were in the Garden of Eden, just like humanity was, so that you would not have to be separate across the Grand Canyon anymore. You could be brought together with God. 
It's something that hasn't even been possible since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden. Your sins stood in the way of that reconciliation. So they were forgiven at great cost of Christ's life and his blood. But the Father's plan involves so much more. He wanted peace. He wanted a people. He wanted a family. He wanted a kingdom. He wanted peace. Between you and him, he wanted reconciliation. First Peter 2.10, we read it earlier, or, he, or we read this passage earlier. We didn't get to this verse. But he says, you, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've been made his people by grace, and now you have peace. Ten times in the Bible, you'll find the same or some version of these words. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, as a description of what we are to anticipate in the new covenant. Something that was broken is fixed. People that were separated are reconciled. But who is the architect of all this reconciliation? Whose plan made it possible for God to call out a chosen people for himself? Who was it? It was God the Father. It was the Father. Remember what we read at the beginning in 1 Peter? He says he was writing to those elect. How? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God did this. God planned this. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter will call him, did this. It was his idea. It was his plan. Now, we know that no person in the triune Godhead ever acts independent of the others, but it is God the Father who the New Testament writers credit with determining to save us in the New Testament over and over. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, there's this occasion where the the, the fledgling church has entered one of their first persecutions and and the jewish authorities are not happy about them preaching in jesus name and the result that people are getting healed and so they get together after they've been threatened and they pray for boldness to continue preaching the the word of god and this is what they pray to god these these assembled disciples they say for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate that means the jews and the gentiles are guilty along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever. Now watch this. Who planned your salvation? They were gathered together against Jesus to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. I'm telling you, in another place, Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Father was the author of your salvation. Sometimes we get this idea of this mean old Old Testament God and this nice Jesus, who, as John Piper once said, we think wrestled the whip out of God's hand. But no, God was the one who from the before creation, the Bible teaches us, was planning to save you, was planning to call your specific name out of death and darkness. That was the Father that did that. God didn't just make the best of a bad situation. Oh, no, they've arrested my son. Oh, no, they're going to put him to death. No! He was the one who wrote the script. 
He was the one who wrote the script. He determined how every step of Jesus' substitutionary death, how his glorious resurrection and his triumphant ascension would take place. He did that. God did it. God chose it. God planned it. God scripted it. And nothing can thwart what God plans to do. Nothing. That's why Isaiah wrote 600 years before Christ's birth, after describing how this Lamb of God would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He goes on in verse 10 of Isaiah 53 to say this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now let's break that down real quick. We're told that God, or that Christ, suffered. All that he suffered because God planned it. The will of the Lord to crush him. He, God the Father, has put him to grief. But he also planned to accept his sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus made this perfect sacrifice and God didn't reject it. He accepted it on behalf of sinful men and women. He said, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's you and I. We are the offspring of God because of faith in what Christ did on the cross for us. He has seen, Christ has looked from heaven and he's seen as the Holy Spirit has called people out of their spiritual tombs. He's seen his offspring. The Father accepted his sacrifice and that's not all the Father did. The Father vindicated him fully by raising him from the dead three days later. And that's what Isaiah tells us. He says the Father planned to resurrect him after his suffering. He says it like this, he shall prolong his days. And so Christ stepped out of that tomb three days later and he will never, ever die again because God has prolonged his days because he has accepted his sacrifice and vindicated his son. Next, the father decreed that the once humiliated, crushed son would be the master and mediator of a new covenant of that word we just looked at, a new covenant of grace. He says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And all of this eternal plan was formulated in the heart of one who was determined not just to be the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter calls him, but also to be the one whom you and I, whom you and I could address as our father who's in heaven. Not just the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but my Father, but your Father. That is who He's become because of the covenant of grace. That's what Jesus taught. We've been adopted into His family with the full benefits of sons and daughters. We are co-heirs with His only Son. And this is why Peter said in our text this morning, according to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through, a, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, he didn't only plan the means of our salvation, Christ's death and resurrection, but he planned your specific election to grace if you're a believer. He didn't say, okay, I'll just save whoever wants to. He said, I'm going to save Eddie. I'm going to save Sherman. I'm going to save Danette. I'm going to save Judy. He, he picked us and he, and he chose us so that we could be his. And he did that before the foundations of the earth. That is the beauty of his covenant work. Jesus will not fail to capture the heart of anyone he has determined to save. Not one. And all of this, all of this planning and choosing, all of this, this whole plan was geared to your salvation, not so that you could boast, the Bible says, but to the praise of His glorious grace. When you look at where you are versus where you were, it shouldn't make you say, I thank God that I'm not a sinner like one of these. It should make you say, God, Your grace is too big for me to fathom. It's too big for me to understand, God. Why would you save a wretch like me? Why? I sure can't give him a good answer. Can you? Can you give him a good answer why he would save you? Because I can't. I know who I was, folks. I did nothing to deserve his grace. Nothing to merit his favor and his love. I should have been dead years ago. Not because of some foolish behavior. Oh, there's plenty of that. I should have been dead, judged in my sin and my rebellion against God. But for some crazy reason, God decided that he was going to rescue me to eternal life instead. I'm not going to understand it. Do you? You think somehow you wandered in because you were worth it? You're mistaken. You're mistaken. Everything you are, if you are a believer, you owe to grace. Everything you have, you owe to grace. And guess what? This is the good part. He ain't done with you. He is not finished. And Philippians gives us this incredible promise that the good work that God has begun in you, He is going to be faithful to complete it. What he started, he will finish. Don't be too discouraged. Don't be too discouraged as you battle those persistent sins that seem to often derail you. Don't be dismayed if the situations of your life, your relationships, your health, your finances are less than ideal. Why? Because you are still in the palm of your Father's hand and you are never, ever going to be out of his sight. Ever. He has good plans to work out all things together for your good, even those, or should I say, especially those that cause you temporary discomfort. He will not sacrifice any of your pain. He has a plan for you. This is what Peter meant when he described all of us who believe as those who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. What does that mean we're not saved till the end? You're not fully saved till the end. That doesn't mean that you can fall away and all that stuff. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that all of the stuff, all the trouble, all the suffering, all the things, someday, just like Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection, you will be vindicated by your resurrection. 
God is not saving. I've said this over and over. I'll continue to say it. If you get sick of hearing me say this, you probably need to go to another church because I'm going to keep saying it. Is that okay? God did not save you so that you could die and become Casper the friendly ghost. God did not save you for that. God saved your soul, your spirit, so that he can progressively save your soul, so that one day he can save your body, and all three elements of you will one day stand as a trophy of God's incredible grace. It will be that way. It will be that way. So you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. A day is coming where it will all be made right. And you'll be, you will be fully saved. Body, soul, spirit. He will get you to where you're going. He will get you to where you're going. Just don't give up. Don't give up. But I would have only preached half the gospel this morning if I didn't say to you, if you are not a believer this morning, I say it all the time, I don't care if you've prayed a prayer with a preacher, I don't care if you've been baptized, if you take communion every week, it doesn't matter to me. If you are not a believer, if you cannot honestly say that you live by trust and faith and belief in Jesus, rather than by your own strength and your own wisdom and your own ambitions and all of those silly things, if you cannot say that you are a believer trusting fully in Jesus Christ, you have no such hope this morning. None. The tenderness of God as a father you will never know as long as you stay there in your sin. You'll never know it. And my heart breaks for you because of that. My heart breaks for you. There are people in this church that probably will never, if you were to die right now, you would never see God. And yet you believe you would because you've deceived yourself to think that some profession you made is good enough without any lordship whatsoever. The wealth of that inheritance of saints, of that full salvation in Christ, is just a pipe dream to you if you have spurned the call to repent and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a pipe dream. It doesn't mean anything to you. All that awaits you who reject this great salvation that God the Father has orchestrated, all that awaits you is a fearful realization of the terrible eternal judgments that are the destiny of all of those who neglect the salvation offered by a God who sacrificed everything to purchase it, everything to provide it. So if that's you, and right now there's a a sting, there's a twist of the Holy Spirit telling you that it's you, that you you are hearing my words and you know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you through me. And I would plead with you. I would beg with you. I would, I would cry out to you that you would repent today and believe the gospel. You will not make it by your good works. Your good works have already failed you. You have done nothing that can earn you salvation, but you have done nothing that is beyond the forgiveness of Almighty God. Nothing. 
I don't care how rotten you think you are. I don't care how smart you think you are either. You've done nothing that is beyond his forgiveness. But please don't be a fool. Don't think that you have tomorrow. Don't put off today. Don't put it off till tomorrow what you could do today. The Bible says today is the day. It's the acceptable hour for salvation. To think that you have tomorrow is it's a fool's assumption. Because if we're honest, you may not even have tonight. So let me plead with you. Let me plead with you. Come to Jesus. Is it difficult? Nope. All you got to do right now, right where you sit, you don't need a big show. You don't need, need, need me to walk you through a little prayer. You don't need to have me come and wave my hands over you or try to knock you down. You don't need any of that. All you need is in your heart right now to say, wow, Jesus, man, I've got my confidence in everything but you. I've got my confidence in my intellect, my money, my job, my family, my relationships. I've got my confidence in anything but you. But Lord, today, I I honor what the Father has orchestrated, and I say yes to you. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all of your ducks in a row. In fact, you never will have your ducks in a row. Ducks are like that, man. They go anywhere they want to go. They do not line up for you. So quit trying. Quit trying. Just admit what a mess you are. Because let me tell you something. If you admit you're a mess this morning, no one's going to wave their finger at you because guess what? We all figured out how much of a mess we all are. And so if you are a mess this morning, why don't you just take that mess? What are you going to do with it? Why don't you just take that mess and give it to Jesus? And you just watch what he does with it. You just watch what he does with it. So would you do that today? All you got to do is take a simple moment. And then say, hey, Jesus, I don't know how this all works, but I've heard and I need you. And he'll come. Now listen, if you do that, would you do me a huge favor? Would you come tell me? Now, I don't have any special gifts or words or magic tricks to do and none of that. I just want to know so we can encourage you and point you in the right direction to do this successfully. And so just let me know. That's all you do. You can let Pastor David know. You can let Daryl know. You can let Don know. Any of us would love to talk to you about that. But please don't leave here. If you have made a decision for Jesus Christ or if you're about to, don't leave here without telling one of us. We want to be your cheerleader. We want to be on your team uh, helping you get to where you're going. Okay? Deal? All right. Would you all stand with me? We're about to gather around the Lord's table. And acknowledge his goodness to us by taking...